Hey, it's Ronan here, and for this week's episode, we just want to draw your attention to a Kickstarter project which we think really deserves your backing. It's called Inner Bind. It's on Kickstarter until Monday, the 29th of September, and it's a physical party game in which players are playing cards in each other, and the cards have instructions, and you have to do something with them. You have to hold them in the crook of your elbow, under your knee, next to your ear, and whoever lasts longest with these binds having played on them wins the game. We've both played it. We think it's really fun, and we think it deserves your support and this is an unpaid for promo so go and check it out thanks and i hope you enjoy the episode hello there and welcome to episode 29 of the game pit this is an episode all about expansions and what they do to the base games Hey, I'm Ronan. Yeah, we don't often get a chance to talk much about expansions because we're usually reviewing full games, what have you, and there were plenty that we wanted to talk about. So in this episode, we're going to have a quick chat through about the good and bad of expansions, what they can do. We're then going to talk about a few different expansions, which we think explore both ends of that spectrum. And Sean, what are we going to be finishing on? Well, to finish Ronan, everybody's favourite, a top five list. We've both chosen our very top five expansions of all time. We are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Also, you can catch all our episodes on 2d6.org. And I hope you enjoy the episode. So we just wanted to very briefly go over the sort of things which expansions can add to a base game and sort of the framework in which we were considering the expansions when we were preparing for the episode. So we've got a list of nine sort of different categories or varieties of expansion that we have sifted through. So the first type of expansion we thought you can get is just more of the same. This can be a good or a bad thing. Some games are based all around variety, so just adding some more variety to that game is exactly what's needed and freshens it up again. Other games where we might need a bit of variety and you just add more of the same, it can be a bit disappointing. So this one's definitely a double-edged sword and depends upon the game. Sean? So number two is overcomplicate. So sometimes people think that they need to add things to games and that really overcomplicates the game. It's things that it doesn't need. So we thought that some of the expansions we're going to talk about today, they're good examples of this. Uh, the third category was sympathetic additions. So there are occasions on which designers are clever enough to add in different mechanisms and different ways of playing the game and they completely suit the base game and you feel like these little things spice things up and maybe refresh a game that's become too stale in having played it too many times. So number four is fix a broken game because not every game works off the bat. Maybe it hasn't been play tested correctly. Maybe the gaming community just finds things that the play testers didn't find. So they bring in these expansions just to fix any problems. Number five can definitely be a good thing or a bad thing. And those are the level of expansion that turn the game into what we call a lifestyle game. You're looking at things like collectible games, living car games, but some other games as well in which in order to keep up with all the expansions, in order to keep up with everything that's happening with the game, things like X-Wing and, and the Fantasy Flight living car games, you've really got to put a lot of money and time into that game and really dedicate it almost as the only game you play to get the most out of all the expansions. 
So next up is adding more players for the better or worse of the game. So some games might need more players because it's a really interactive game. There's maybe not enough in the base game and the time frame allows for it. But also some games add more players and it's not really needed. So we will have a look at that too. The third from last category was make it into a whole new game. Now, you don't often see this, but sometimes expansion is so radical that you feel like adding expansion or not gives you two completely separate games. Two games that can be judged on their own merits. And sometimes you prefer one game, the vanilla, and another time when you add that expansion, you prefer that second type of what started as a base game, but actually became two completely different beasts. And the penultimate point is adding depth. Sometimes games are really liked and a certain corner of the gaming community just won't take to it because it's too light. They want something with a bit more meat on its bones. Adding depth does exactly what it says on the tin. It's going to add a little bit to that game, make it more intricate, make it more involved, and it can be a good or a bad thing. And the last category we come up with is completing the game. And this is definitely a controversial one. There are schools of thoughts that certain games are released with certain mechanisms and extensions taken out in order to put them deliberately into expansions to make more money from that game. So these are the expansions that go in and you say, well, these expansions should have been in from the start. This game did not feel complete without these expansions and definitely something that rubs people up the wrong way and possibly we'll come across one or two of those today as we carry on talking about these expansions. So within that framework, those nine categories, that's what we were thinking about when we thought about all of the expansions we're about to discuss. So we have chosen six expansions just to discuss and then decide whether they're essential to the game maybes or just stay away from them and we hope to talk about some of the points that we just discussed my first game to discuss the expansions of is pathfinder the adventure card game now this is a funny one because the expansions are absolutely essential if you like the game you're going to buy the expansions because Pathfinder being a role-playing game in card game format, you are going to want to level up your characters, you're going to want to explore new areas, you're going to want to fight new villains, is finding spells or learning spells and finding equipment. It is all part of this game because it is very much mirroring a role-playing experience. So that's where it's, it's really odd because you have to buy these expansions. Now, we've had our issues with the game. We both like the game but we've had our problems with it, and in particular with the expansions. Now, I want to put Ronan on the spot. Who's going to explain our problems with these expansions? Certainly, the problems I face with the expansions, Sean, is that they don't change the challenge of the game enough. When you have a co-op, when you're spending money on it every couple of months, and you've got six expansions coming up, you expect the game to change. What happened with Pathfinder over the course of the first year of it was that the last expansion was adding almost exactly the same challenges as the base game only with higher numbers to roll with your modifiers because you've leveled up it didn't do enough it didn't do what i think we hoped it was going to do i think that when we look back at this game it's going to appear to be a missed opportunity on what they could have done and how creative they could have got in this design space of having this captive audience who are willing to buy expansion after expansion and see where the designers can go because really didn't go anywhere they stayed on the same narrow path and followed it 
I think almost to their doom because I know an awful lot of people who were excited and started off by buying the base game and didn't finish buying the expansions have got no interest in buying the new Skulls and Shackles base set because again they, they don't appear to have done anything very different with that either. I think that when you look at this evolving co-op area of the hobby, you're going to be looking at stuff like XCOM that's coming out in which it's got the intelligent devices and an app which are going to run the AI of the game, which are genuinely going to change the way the game plays every time. That is going to look so much fresher, and I think it's going to make Pathfinder Adventure Card Game look a little bit shoddy by comparison what they've tried to do with their game. If you have the base game and you enjoy playing it, which we both do, you have to get the expansions, which I have done. I completed the cycle and I will play it through it all, but I'm still a little bit disappointed. It's a bit of a funny one. In Sean, what do you think? Is it a must-buy, a maybe, or a meh? Well, it is a funny one. You're exactly right. Because it's a must-buy, but the expansions aren't actually doing what you want them to do, but you're still going to buy them because of the very nature of the game. I think the best way of describing this is is when you go for that sword that's just a tiny bit better than the sword you've got, but you have to spend two, three hours just to get that one sword because they haven't given you enough variety. They haven't given you anything that changes the game. So it's a must-have, but it's a meh must-have. Oh, I was going to steal that description. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think we're going to concur on this one. The next expansion we're going to talk about is Lords of Vegas Up. Now, Lords of Vegas is kind of an area control game set in Las Vegas in which all the players are developing casinos in an attempt to score lots of points and earn lots of money in order to facilitate scoring those points. What Up adds is the base game was for up to four players only. It adds two extra players. So you get the components for fifth and sixth player. And it also adds the ability to build your casinos vertically as well as horizontally. So in the base game, you could just build on one level. And if you want to spread out, you had to spread out into adjacent areas. In this case, you can now build your casino up. Now, when a casino is of a particular size, you must pay to move the whole of the casino up a level. So let's say if it's a size four casino, you must pay for all four tiles to go up at the same time. It costs $15 million per tile for your casino. It doesn't change the color of the casino. It doesn't change the dice at all. It just raises it up a level. You can only raise up the number of levels as to the number of players playing the game at the time. And what happens with that new casino is say it was a four tile casino where it would have been scoring four points previously when triggered by the pull of a card. It now would score eight points because each of those extra tiles you've put in will add to the point value of each casino. So it gives interesting scoring opportunities. In terms of the first part of this expansion, adding two extra players, no one in the world, in their right mind, wants to play Lords of Vegas with more than four players. Five and six players means way more downtime, way less control of what's going on in the game, and way less fun. It's just painful. That is an awful idea. Go away. The other bit, the ability to build your casinos up, changes the game a little, and it makes it a bit more strategic, and it definitely changes the end game. Where previously in the base game, when you got towards the end of the game, people would be taking big risks, they'd have lots of money, and they'd be trying to find ways to score points somehow, because money is not worth anything at the end. It's all about scoring the points. So you'd be paying loads of money for a re-roll with, with a small chance of success, and you'd be trying to fiddle around with tile colours in order to try to grab in on someone else's casino, and, and just splashing money in desperate, low percentage attempts to score points. With up... 
it can take unpromising positions that previously you trade away for nothing and turn them into point scoring opportunities at the end of the game. It adds a bit more strategy. It adds a bit more, you know, every area in the board is now worth something if you develop it in a certain way. And I think it makes the game a little bit less thematic. There's less of the Las Vegas stand-up role, shouting to you and whooping and trying to play the odds. And a bit more of the thinking and perhaps building defensively, building a smaller footprint casino much higher up so that other people can't get in and attack. Because let's say Sean has got a six dice next to my casino. Well, if I build my casino up a couple of levels, he's going to have to build up just to be able to attempt to, to interact with my casino and take it over. So you can defend yourself, which you previously couldn't really do in Lords of Vegas too well. Um, not without time manipulation anyway. So the up bit makes it more strategic, a bit more Euro and a bit more away from the theme. Sean, you have thoughts on Lords of Vegas up. Yeah, well, we semi-concur. I really don't think that five or six players is ever needed in this game. So we kind of agree. But... I do think the whole up building element is just a way of accommodating those five to six players without it getting too silly, too congested on the board. I don't think it freshens up the game and expands the game. doesn't make the two, three or four player game any better. It's really pricey for what you get. I'm wondering, did Mayfair really push themselves hard? The whole essence of this game is you've got the gambling side where somebody might get that six dice and then you might have to re-roll your dice and that's another gamble. I think going up, it's just a, it's a get-out-of-jail card that the game doesn't need. It takes away from the experience. There's lots of games where it is Euro. There's lots of Euro games out there. I'm starting a campaign. Keep Lords of Vegas as Lords of Vegas. Let's not have this up nonsense. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I... Don't agree with you on that case. I think that the up aspect is very interesting. What I wouldn't want to do is play up with a mixed group of experienced players and less experienced players because if the patterns on the board and what's emerging, if you can see what's going on, you can really use up to screw some people over who aren't that familiar with the game. So in terms of whether I think it's a must-buy I don't think it is. I think it's a maybe. And if you feel like you've explored a lot of the game space within Lords of Vegas, you feel like you're thinking a bit more strategy will come into it, then I think that's when you want to buy it. We have a regular game group. We play Lords of Vegas with a lot. It gets vicious. It's a a real, like, we get together all mates from work and and we have a great time over it. And Up has added something to those games for us. But I don't think it is for everyone. And I don't think it's for Sean. No, not for me at all. If you want more players, then it is a must. But other than that, just leave it alone. If you want more players, so moving... you, need, you need help. <laughs> possibly, possibly. So moving on to the Tile Laying Classic, which needs no introduction, even though I've just given it one. Now, this game is Carcassonne. And it has an absolute slew of expansions we have large expansions we have small expansions we've even got carcassonne minis which came out in 2012 there's no point in going through every single expansion in this so what i'm going to do is i'm just going to pick a couple of the large ones and maybe just quickly discuss a couple of the minis the first two expansions for carcassonne are inns and cathedrals and traders and builders inns and cathedrals Amazingly, adds an inn and a cathedral tile, which increase the scoring on this roads and the cities, respectively, if they are finished. But it adds the caveat that if they're not finished, then you score nothing. It gives you a six-player, but meh, whatever. But it also gives you a large double meeple, which counts as two meeples, 
on your on the board. So it gives that that one's obviously something you really want to score well with. But also, it, and I, I like this because it's actually improved the game slightly with a component, which is it gives you the 50 and 100 tiles because that scoreboard in Carcassonne was nonsense. It only went up to 50 and everybody scored more than 50. So it gives you 50 and 100 tiles to keep track of your scoring. Traders and builders. Now, this comes with a large cloth bag, which helps you in terms of you don't have to stack up these tiles, especially if you're getting different expansions with different backs. You can tell them sometimes the more keen-eyed amongst us can. The way it changed the game is with traders, some of the new city tiles depict goods, wine, grain, and cloth. And when you complete a city, your own or somebody else's, you collect a matching token for each good in the city, and that gives you more points. The builders... Uh, everyone has a builder meeple and you can add your builder to any city or road you already have in progress now anytime you add a tile to that city or road you immediately get another turn so that's basically what those two big expansions do there's also things like the princess and the dragon and the tower that go along and the carcassonne minis are the first one's a flying machine for instance a flying machine is a small expansion there's only eight tiles in it and basically the tiles show have a little pair of wings and you can move your player from one wing section to another wing section so you can move your meeples around what i'm trying to get at is that there's there's so much to add to this game that you can almost tailor your own gaming experience you can pick and choose some of these expansions oh i like the look of that one i like the look of that oh, i don't fancy that and it's it's almost like a modular way of buying expansions because you can tailor carcassonne to your own personal tastes one of the things i'm going to be asking ronan to answer as well is is it too much now have we got to the point where there's just too much carcassonne expansions and also ronan the catapult <laughs> i'm sure we've been here before without the catapult <laughs> sean there's not enough game in carcassonne for me to care about any of these expansions i really like the base game it's fun it's quick it gets players in and involved there's a beauty to it we've discussed it before I just don't care about the expansions. And when I see 40 of them, it depresses me. It makes me want to cry. You turn a Carcassonne into a lifestyle game. Imagine trying to play a game with all of those tiles. You'd be there forever. So, what one expansion, and you can only have one, would you recommend to Carcassonne players who are looking to expand the base game? The first one. Because of the, the scoring tiles, and I really like what it does to the cities, and it gives you that sort of caveat where if you don't finish your cities or your roads, you're not going to score. So it adds a little bit of little bit of tactics to the game. People can deny you that road finishing or that city finishing tile, and, and you're not going to score. Also, just for those scoring tiles, that makes such a difference. You don't have to remember how many times around you around you've been on the board, and yeah. I think if I was pushed, that would be it. Okay, and I did have a second question for you. If you could choose one of either Carcassonne with expansions or the variants of Carcassonne, such as South Seas and the city and the castle and all the rest of it, Hunters and Gatherers, which would you rather play? As I said, the beauty of the expansions for me and Carcassonne, they're not that they're individually wonderful but I can tailor-make my own game. So for me, it's always going to be the base Carcassonne game, and I love the game. I think it's a fabulous base game, and the expansions add just enough for me to keep it interesting. Yeah, they don't add enough to keep it interesting to me. (laughs) 
not not the game. I love the game, but I just I have no interest. The double point meeple dude, no. The pig meeple, no, no. All no. I'm just shaking my head furiously here. In terms of Carcassonne and expanding it, I think it just takes away from what the appeal of that game is, which is quick, short, sharp gameplay. I am not fussed at all. And as a whole, that massive group of expansions get a meh from me. You, Sean? As a whole, the expansions get a meh. But I think individually picking them and being able to tailor them, it makes them a must-have for me. Moving on to another game, which is incredibly well-known, is Seven Wonders. This is the card drafting game in which you're attempting to build a civilization and the games, the cards are going around around the table and you're trying to collect resources and score points through many various methods. Now, there has been two expansions released so far for Seven Wonders out of a mooted seven, which seems incredible. And so far, we have had leaders and cities and Babel is right around the corner. So the first expansion was Seven Wonders as leaders now this added leader cards and a pre-game draft in which players were drafting four leaders and the leaders one would be played at the beginning of each of the three ages of the game and they would have various and myriad effects you start the game with slightly more money because the leaders generally cost some money and they were supposed to give you a certain direction in which to build your civilization as you're going so it was an attempt to add a little bit of pre-game strategy perhaps for players who have played seven wonders a few times the second expansion that came out was Seven Wonders Cities. Now, this added a couple of different things. It added Cities cards, which are black cards, and generally are much more interactive than other cards. They would allow you to be a diplomat and sit out certain wars. It would allow you to steal money from other players, force other players into debt, which would cost them points, and generally uh, steal other cards, or the effects of other cards, rather. And... and just added a bit of interaction to the game. And Seven Wonders Cities also added a team game to Seven Wonders in that with one of your neighbours, you'll be playing as a joint civilization, and your joint scores will be added up at the end of the game. Whichever team had the most points would win. So therefore, as the cards were drafting in either direction, one player would see them first and be able to discuss with the other player which they would draft and which the colleague was looking to draft and therefore create some sort of synergy between the two civilizations. I have very much got conflicting views on these two expansions. Leaders, I really dislike. I feel like it adds too much time and too much overheads to the game. I think it adds a lot of random because either you're lucky and the leaders you get work together or you're unlucky and they don't and you don't know which of the leaders are in the game. When you start doing that draft, which is one of my real bugbears about drafting games i don't know the value of these first four cards i'm looking at i don't know if i'm throwing away a perfect card which will match with all these other cards we're about to get because i don't know what's there really dislike that aspect i think the symbology in base seven wonders was great in leaders it's really awkward i still don't have a clue what half those leaders do when i'm looking at them just going like what 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 is that and really takes away from the appeal for me however cities i really do like i like the added interaction i think the cities cards in themselves quite interesting and most specifically i love the team game eight player team seven wonders is fantastic it adds so much to be drafting in synergy with someone else and to be discussing your tactics and trying to to grow up in two different ways which complement each other sean seven wonders city seven wonders leaders what are your thoughts Brandon, i'm going to agree with you shocking enough as it is i do think that leaders kind of snaps you out of the seven wonders game it, it adds an extra phase to the game and 
I don't think it's in the spirit of what Seven Wonders was. I think with, with Cities, it's a continuation, really, of what the game is already. It brings in more player interaction, as you say. It adds a little bit of theme, adds a few little sort of things that you have to consider and think about in the game, but it doesn't sort of drag you away from what the base game set out to do. And I think the added interaction was one of my issues with Seven Wonders. I think it was kind of interactive, but I also felt like I was constantly just sitting down studying my own tableau and and of those of my neighbours. But I think with Cities, it does add that interaction. And I think, yeah, I really enjoy Cities. Leaders, probably not so much. The only small sort of problem I've got with it is it's quite expensive, Ronan. Yeah, I think that in terms of cities, I'd only really be fast getting it if I thought I was going to be playing that big team game very often. I think that adds real value to it. If you don't think you're going to play that very often, and I don't know how many people you how you have, eight players that all like seven wonders and want to sit down for a game of team that often. But if you are, get it. If you're not, don't. So in terms of buy-in, I would say cities is a maybe. There's some interesting cards in there. It is quite expensive for what you get. Leaders, meh, don't like it, not interested. Sean? I completely agree. Yeah, Cities was very, very nearly a must-buy, but then you have to consider how often are you going to get its full benefit. But so Cities is maybe, but on the higher end of that scale, and Leaders, I wouldn't bother. Moving on is another game that we've talked about quite a lot in the game pit. That's Lords of Waterdeep. And its expansion is The Scoundrels of Skullport. For those who don't know, Lords of Waterdeep is a very light worker placement Euro game set in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. In this expansion, you're getting two expansions in one box. So what what do these two expansions do? Well, they add a sixth player. They add more cards. You've got more intrigue and more quests. Uh, You've got more buildings and you've got some new lords. The, The lords are the people that basically set up your quest if you will what you're aiming for they're going to give you score points at the end of the game so under mountain which is one of these two expansions in the box it's all about bigger quests that provide bigger rewards and that's really what that's about that you get much more but it's harder to get Skullport, which is the second of the expansions now this says as a whole new board with new locations to visit and the biggest change i suppose is the addition of this new resource in the game which is corruption corruption is going to work against your final score and the more people that have corruption in their possession the more points lost for each marker in your possession so what does it really do to the game i think it answers a lot of the critiques aimed at it from more serious gamers euro gamers that kind of thing that the game was too light for them and they wanted a little bit more depth to the game maybe a a smattering of strategy rather than just like the tactical worker placement that it was so it makes the game deeper but for me i like the fact that lords of waterdeep was light if you want to go and play a, a deeper euro game you can find a deeper euro game there's much deeper worker placement games with more and more involved and i like the fact that it 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 stayed true to its sort of roots that it was a Dungeons and Dragons game. It was a, almost like a gateway game into worker placement. Now, it scratches an itch, I suppose, for other players, and it, it's very much to your tastes. That's my take on it. Ronan, what do you feel? 
Yeah, we've gone over this previously, Sean. So we'll just run over that ground there. Um, under Mountain, more the same with the big quest. It must work. It must balance because everyone moans when you do one the big quest from Under Mountain. And at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily mean you've won because I've seen people do them and win. I've seen people do them and not win. The extra lords, I'm actually, you know, not that fussed about. Some of them are not as great as other lords. It adds a bit of imbalance to the game. So I'm not fussed about those. The corruption from Skullports itself is actually quite interesting, but games too tend to self-balance, I've found. Certainly with more players, you don't often get a player with 312 corruption, everyone else with zero. Because if someone's got loads, people tend to go, well, it's not so bad if I take a bit more now. And it's, It was good, though. It adds a little bit of interaction, so that's fine. The sixth player is cool because the game's so quick that actually adding an extra player to this game doesn't make too much difference whatsoever. I am give or take on the expansion, but that's not necessarily a negative. What that means is that I really like the base game without it. I really like the game with it in. I'm not fussed which one I play, to be honest. If I'm in a rush, no expansion. If people want to play the expansion, sure, fine. It doesn't make that much of a difference to me. But a good expansion, it just it works either way for me. So my take on it is that it's a maybe. If you want more from the game, absolutely go for it. Then it's a must for you. If you like the base game enough to want to spend money on the expansion, I like the fact that it is modular and there's two distinct expansions that you can add in. And you can just pick and choose. You can add the lords in. You can add just the buildings in, whatever you want to do. The expansion isn't for me. I won't particularly play with it, but I can see why others would like it and what it gives the game. Next expansion we're going to discuss is Castle Panic Wizard's Tower. Now, Castle Panic is a cooperative game in which the players are defending a castle from the onrushing hordes of monsters which are trying to tear it down. If the castle gets destroyed before all the monsters have been defeated, then all of the players have lost. Now, the Wizard's Tower adds quite a lot to this game. It adds in itself a wizard's tower. The castle is made out of six different towers. One of them now becomes the wizard's tower, which provides spells. And you're going to need those spells because the challenge is definitely ramped up by wizard's tower. It adds harder monsters. It adds fire, which can damage the castle over time. There are a variety of boss monsters which come into play, which are much tougher than the normal monsters. And you don't get the same ones in every game. It adds flying monsters, which can only be hit in certain areas. And it spices the whole thing up. Now, Castle Panic, I played it a lot with my children a couple of years ago. And even they, at the ages of six and nine, got a bit bored of just Castle Panic by itself. It became a bit easy. We kind of, after the first couple of games, always knew we were going to win. This makes it much much tougher it desperately needs an expansion this game to keep it in our play rotation and it got it it adds challenge it adds variety it means that decisions are not so obvious when you're playing the base game it's really clear which cards are required on each turn there's not often as a group difficult decisions to be made when you up the difficulty of the game then suddenly you're sacrificing good cards in order to make a move which is vital to make at this time. And the boss monsters come out and the six of them provide an expansion and only three are used in each game. And they really shake things up and they change your priorities when you thought you had things lined up and suddenly a different problem has just reared its ugly head. I think that this is a really vital expansion to add to the base game. Before I go any further, Sean Castle Panic Wizard's Tower. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
it is an absolute nailed on certainty that you need this expansion. Otherwise, the game, there's nothing to this game. It's just a mindless procession of chance. You know exactly what monster you've got to kill. And if you can kill it, wonderful. If you can't kill it, oof, you can't kill it. There was nothing to this game. What the expansion does is turn it into a game. You have choices to make. You actually have a decision. There is actually some excitement. There is some discussion around the table as to what you should do. Yeah, 100%. If you get in Castle Panic, you must have this expansion. For sure, I'm going to agree with you again. Castle Panic, I'll tell you the one great use of it is to teach cooperative games to young kids. I find Castle Panic was easier to teach co-op to young children, even than Forbidden Island. I guess that kind of points out to how basic it is because everything makes sense, everything moves a certain progression. There's not so much random coming in because kids can't predict when those tiles are going to flip in Forbidden Island, for example. But you can predict the movement in Castle Panic pretty much and you almost know exactly what's going to happen. This really very nearly made it into my top five in terms of expansions you must have if you've got the base game. Castle Panic, if you've tried it and you didn't think it was that great, if you get a chance, try it at Wizards Tower. It's a different game. And by the way, Castle Panic, throw away that semi-co-op nonsense. Someone scores the most points. One of the games that doesn't do it right. Sean, next. Okay, and now we are going to talk about Star Trek Fleet Captains, the Romulan Empire expansion. S if anyone doesn't know what Star Trek Fleet Captains is, it's basically a fight between yourself and the Klingons using the Star Trek ships. And you are exploring an area of the universe between you and your opposition player, and you're doing missions and you're taking them on in combat, etc. What does this do? It adds a third faction. So it's not just yourself and the Klingons anymore. The Romulans enter the game. It adds more players and it adds the relevant cards for that third faction. It adds espionage missions and saboteur cards that can be placed on enemy ships, which I think is a nice little addition. And what does it do to the game? Well, the game was kind of zero sum. And there was always that period where you took your while to get to each other. And you're always going to, as the Federation, try and avoid the Klingons, big meaty ships that were going to smash you apart and try and do your little missions where you're firing someone down to collect a bit of soil from the ground. And there was always that way of kind of circumnavigating a, a fight as, a, as the Federation until you got ganged up on. And that could take a little bit of a time. What this does, it forces uneasy alliances because you're almost in each other's face immediately. If the Romulans and the Klingons decide to gang up on the Federation player, then that obviously makes it a lot tighter for them. If one team is getting ahead of the other team, it means that, hang on, we better switch alliances. And I think it added a lot to the game and it added a natural third player to the game rather than this sort of four player teams of two and so it added more players in a good way and made the game a lot more deeper and strategic for it ronan what did you think of this i thought very similarly to you sean i think the base game was a good game don't get me wrong when i'm in the mood for a three-hour luck fest this is one of the ones that i will go for <laughs> But the Starfleet could be all runny away -y and avoidy and looking at some rocks through a microscope and win without ever really engaging the game much and just kind of piddly, piddly, piddling around the edges. Yeah, genuinely turns a two-player game into a three-player and more game naturally. Also, for some reason, the two teams four-player game 
with just the base set didn't really work. The addition of the Romulans and their sneaky sneaky and their cloaking and their kind of different devious ways they can do things makes a six player team game fantastic. It's unbelievable the same base games by another faction can be made so different but a six player team game of this is so much fun. It really is brilliant and it doesn't add too much time to the game because each team plays simultaneously and the sort of limited communication between the players which I really does work. I think it's fantastic. If you enjoy the base game of Star Trek Fleet Captains, then I heartily recommend getting Romulan Empire. If you think you've played that game enough to, to need an expansion, go for it. It really mixes it up. Yeah, if I haven't made myself clear enough already, I absolutely adore this expansion. I would advise anybody to get it if you've got the base game, just to change things up a little bit. It's a definite for me, and it very nearly made it into my top five. Okay, and moving on to the Manhattan Project second stage. Manhattan Project is a worker placement game in which each player was racing to produce plutonium and uranium nuclear bombs in order to get to a varying points total depending upon the number of players. You were placing workers on a central board and then into facilities you had built on your own tableau or possibly using espionage into other players' tableaus. You were possibly damaging each other, collecting resources and like I say, creating these bombs in a real race for victory. What did second stage add? Well, it was a modular expansion, which means that it added different things which you can choose which bits to drop in and out. The first thing was there was a very small expansion previously called Nations, in which each player represented a certain nation and each nation had a certain power. Well, they put Nations 2 into second stage, so there was just another set of nations, each with the player power for the whole game. Um, depending upon which nation you were, you had a little tiny variety in how you played. They also added personalities, which meant that each player would take a personality for a certain amount of time of the game, then they'd have to give it back and take a different personality. So it's similar to Nations, only not persistent throughout the whole game. And again, they would give you different individual sort of tweaks and advantages, which you could use during different parts of the game, depending upon what you're attempting to achieve. Another thing it added was rockets, which allowed you to attack other players buildings with no defense possible in the base game you could build bombers to attempt to build each other's facilities but you could build fighters to defend against these bombing attacks well in second stage you've got rockets you can build and there is no defense possible for those there's also h bombs available which will double the points of plutonium bombs but there was a third resource added to the game which you must have in order to build this in terms of each of those different modules, like I say, you can add them in bits and bobs as you feel. None of them really added very much individually to the game. I didn't feel like they changed much. I didn't feel like it was radically much different. I felt like it added a little bit of overheads. I'm going to let Sean jump in before I give my final thoughts. I don't know what your final thoughts going to be, Roman, but I think it gave the game choices. My only issue with Manhattan Project, which I really, really do, I think it's a wonderful game, is that your choices weren't that far reached. There was only a linear path that you could all take, and you ended up kind of doing the same things. If you did one thing on your turn, by a turn or a turn after that later, I was pretty much going to have to do the same thing and 
and there, there wasn't enough places to really sort of expand your choice. And that's what it did. It gave you a little bit more choice and variety to the game. And just for that alone, I think it's a worthwhile expansion. Now, whether it's an absolute must, I don't know. Probably not, but I think it's definitely one to consider. And I will definitely be considering buying it. Yeah, no, I don't like it much at all. I think the most use I can get out of it is that the nations are not balanced in any which way. So if I had a less experienced player, I'd give them a better nation and give the most experienced players a worse nation in order to try and balance it up. Not sure that was as designer intended. Didn't particularly like the personalities. You can get screwed up a bit there. The rockets were rubbish and irritating. The H-bombs just added a bit of overheads, which wasn't really necessary. The whole thing took away a bit of the race aspect of the game, which I quite liked. I know some people, when they first play it, find it strange that no one's got any points, and then all of a sudden, everyone's getting points, and ding, 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 the game's over. But you've been building that engine to race for the last hour and a half, so you know you should really be aware of what's going on. Really, second stage, I did nothing exciting whatsoever. I feel a little bit like they listened to certain sections of the community too much and took on board that opinion of the most vociferous rather than the majority and second stage just did not do it for me whatsoever adding too much too much fiddle and messing with it and not really putting anything to the structure of the game just doing a bit of window dressing around the outside so into the last four of these 12 and my next choice is Eclipse Rise of Ancients. So Eclipse is the interstellar galactical economy game where you're building up your empire and proving your ships with new technologies. You're taking on alien races and trying to get resources to build new ships. What does Rise of Ancients do? Well, it introduces several new additions to the base game, such as rare technologies, it has developments, more alliances, ancient homeworlds, warp portals. And I suppose the big thing that it does is increase that player count from six players to nine players. And they can all be played or you can add them individually because it gives you different races and they have different powers. So the overwhelming thing for me in this expansion is the sheer size of it. I opened the box and was absolutely stunned by the amount that's in that box. There's so much counters and chips and new races and the ships for those new races and new boards. I was absolutely flabbergasted. It took me ages to bag them all up. So that's the first thing. I think the next stage is that you can pick and choose. Again, I talked about you can pick and choose like the expansions in Carcassonne. And I really do like something where you can pick and choose what you add to the game because it all works individually. If you just want the rare technologies or if you just want the ancient alien artifacts to, into your game, then pick them up, put them in. There's rules and they will add it to Eclipse. The thing I don't like about the game is the extra players. I can't imagine a world in where you would have enough time or patience to play the fantastic Eclipse with nine players. It would take forever, and I just don't understand it. But I'll definitely take the alien races and swap them in and out. So, yeah, I've said enough about this one for now. Ronan, what are your thoughts? Well, I 
don't feel like I've played enough Eclipse to warrant the need for an expansion at all. I think there's so much space to explore within Eclipse itself that this just hasn't happened. I've never played with Rise of the Agents. So my comments again are going to be based on a set of questions for you, Sean. Which of those modules are your favourites to add in? I think the only thing I'm likely to use over and over again is the rare technologies and the ancient homeworlds and warp portals. I would say that the warp portals add the most to gameplay. There's something different and you can jump from one space to another on the board because if you've watched any sci-fi ever you know what War Portal does. So it really does change up the defense that you can build up or you can stay away from other players. It completely takes that away because if there's a War Portal there, you, you know you've got to defend that War Portal and maybe you can't attack that alien ship that's hanging around or your neighbor. I like the rare technologies because they just add to the game. They're, they're seamless. They, they fit in with the game. They just add a few technologies that you wouldn't be able to get in there necessarily. They're my favourite parts of this expansion, Mona. Do you think they missed any opportunities with the expansion? Is there something that you wanted to see but they didn't put in there? My basic answer to that, Roland, is no. There's loads of stuff in there. Uh, some of it, as I said, is seamless. Some of it just changes the game slightly. There's still lots to explore in Eclipse as it is. So for me, I'm not wanting anything new and fresh just yet. My last question to you is, will nine-player Eclipse ever be played outside of secure institutions? Uh, that's negatory. Brilliant. I can't. <laughs> I think it's obvious there's loads in the base game to this. If you've played Eclipse loads and loads, then sure, go for Rise of the Ancients. It's a good value, huge expansion, which adds even more life to the game. The only thing that's ruined Eclipse for experienced players, I think, is overplaying off that app, which had the broken AI and showed everyone the one strategy that works. Hopefully, Rise of the Ancients addresses that a bit with the other technology it adds in and different ways of playing. Please let them not release an app of it and break their game again. That would be really, really silly of them because they've become close to ruining a great game with a cruddy app. Sean? I agree that it, it does just enough. It brings you that modular feel to it. You can pick and choose what you want from it. And for a game as big as Eclipse, then I think that's perfect. What I haven't mentioned is the Ship Pack 1 expansion, which I feel, for me, bling, for my bling, acquisition bling. disorder, yeah, exactly, my acquisition disorder and that game in Bling, I was delighted to to get my copy of that last lesson and yeah that that for me adds a little bit more to the game so ship pack one for me a definite purchase but the rise of ancients is a maybe okay moving on to another game which has lots and lots of modular expansions this is fresco fresco is a worker placement game based upon the players adding to a fresco within a cathedral and running their own art workshop and using their apprentices to get paint mix paint paint in the cathedral paint portraits and generally run it as well as you can keeping everyone happy and scoring lots of points now controversially i think to the british and american market this game came out as a base game with three modules included within the game itself now 
I think this is something that sometimes people get the knickers in the twist about because they're saying, well, those three modules should just be included in the base game. It's far too basic without them, although it is already in the box. But I think a little bit of understanding of the German market needs to be here. When you go to Essen, there are a lot of families, normal families playing games that a lot of people, certainly in the UK, would not play with their families. Like a worker placement game is a normal sort of game to play with your kids. And it is very much more family than hobby orientated in terms of the amount of money that can be made off games. We see it as almost a specialist hobby over here for these sort of games over there mass market issues so i can understand why there is a very much a stripped down version of the game which to us as hobby gamers feels incomplete without adding some of these modules in so that having been said there are 10 modules available so far for fresco and i will run very very quickly through them the first one is the portraits, which means when you go to the portrait workshop, you do not just make money for your action, but you also reward extra powers, things that give you one-off bonuses in the game. And I'll tell you the best thing about this is that it gives you a good reason to get up early in the morning because there's a limited amount of bonuses available each round in the portrait gallery. The second expansion which is included in the base game is the Bishop's Request. This means there's a bishop in the cathedral, and when you paint part of the fresco in the cathedral and the bishop is near you, you're going to score some extra points. It's a bit rubbish, to be honest with you. It's a bit superfluous. I don't see the point of it, and I don't like it. Next one is the special blend. Now, in the special blend, in the game, you've got the primary colours, yellow, red, blue. You've got the secondary colours of green, purple, and orange and then this adds the tertiary colors which happen to be pink and brown well, i don't know they're tertiary colors but there you go and it gives you harder tiles to paint in the cathedral because you have to have mixed up towards these sort of more advanced colors and this really is the most important expansion i think in the game because this brings it a bit above something you play with younger children and into something much more gamely so by adding in portraits bishop's request and special blend from the box you turn it into a light medium euro game as opposed to a very light worker placement game they released three more expansions in one box and they were by the way Expansion box 456 has got some fantastic components in there and worth buying just for the components themselves. You get little paint pots. It's only a cardboard thing, but it looks like a paint pot with actual lids for each of the different colours. And you get lots of cardboard and bling and it is the Euro version of Sean's Ship Pack 1. The first one in expansion is the Wishing Well. During the market phase, players can throw their lacquered pennies in the well and try and get a bonus. It affects getting up early because there's only a certain amount of bonuses available during the round, like the portraits, but it's okay. It's not that great. The fifth expansion is all about gaining gold leaf when buying paint. And each round, there's a special color, which is called the gilded color for that round. And if you use gold leaf and when you're painting with that color in the fresco, then you get extra points. But you can't really plan for that too well. You don't know what the Guild of Colours is going to be. So it adds a bit of luck for scoring points. It feels a little bit like that Bishop's Favour in that. You're scoring points for a bit of an arbitrary reason. And the sixth expansion, which is the name of the expansion itself, is the Glaziers. Now, this allows you to 
when you play the game of Fresco, there's action columns which you assign your workers to. It can cover one of the action columns and you get glass and that allows you to restore windows when you're painting at the edge of the fresco. Now you can see what colours you're going to need around the edge of the fresco when you're going to paint and you can't paint the edges without doing the windows as well. And you can plan that and it adds a bit of strategy to the game and I like glazes. If you're playing with people who have played fresco a little bit, adding in glazes gives a little bit more depth to it and again it feels a bit like number three, the special blend, adding the tertiary colours, adding the glazes, adding a bit more but sympathetically as opposed to some of the random scoring. The seventh expansion is called Scrolls. It is overpriced lunacy. In the cathedral, there's 25 tiles. It gives you one column and one row. And if you finish tiles yourself, in that column or row, you score some bonus points. So basically, you're getting a number one to five and another number one to five. And that's it. And this comes in a box. And I've seen them charging like 15, 20 quid for it. Don't know what that's all about. Stay away from the scrolls. What a load of nonsense. If you want to play with that mechanism... Then make some chits, get some chits from another game, roll some dice, what a load of tosh. And you know what? Let's forget about expansions 8, 9 and 10 because it's getting too much. Crikey, there's just too much going on with this game. Too many expansions. It, it, it's going a bit above my head now. Sean, I need you to take over. I'm in fresco expansion dizziness. I think it's passed on to me because just listening to you has made me very confused. <laughs> Yeah, I take on board the point that the first three modules or expansions or whatever you want to call them were included in the box. But And we do pick on Queen a little bit in this show, but it's this kind of actually where they've got these little Queenies and these little tiny expansions and they're constantly charging you that little bit more money for the game with things that could have and probably should have been in, in the game themselves. They either don't really do anything to the game or they're things that fix or add the stuff that should have been in the base game for me. And that's my issue with this game. I love Fresco, but I really haven't got the time to be collecting all of these tiny little expansions and checking to see which ones work and which ones don't. Just give me a one expansion box and let me pick and choose what I want from it. I don't want to have to be going to Essen to get an expansion. I don't want to have to be searching for promos and things like that just give me one box i'll decide whether i'm going to pay 10 20 quid whatever you want to make me pay and then i'll pick and choose i don't like the way that these queenies keep popping out of the woodwork yeah questionable expansion policy in terms of queen games you know, the fresco big box has just come out with everything included in it but some of those big boxes are just overwhelming the, the alhambra big box had a crazy it was in the teens amount of expansions in there and if you didn't know the game really well it was very hard to work out what well, should i or shouldn't i add and, and and what's vital and what isn't vital and, and it, they're almost going the same way now with fresco i will say Four, five, six. That one, uh, Glages, is worth getting if you get a reasonable price because the bits are gorgeous, and Glages adds a good bit to the gameplay. The gold leaf and wishing well, they're not that great. Other than that, not that fussed by the rest of the expansions, but a game which you must play with the first three modules. If you ever play just the base game and you didn't like it, please go back and try it with those first three added in because it does add the bit of depth to the game that it required so fresco expanded to within an inch of its life of varying quality sean what's the last expansion you wish to discuss in this part of the episode well it is a belfort the expansion 
expansion. Belfort is the game where you are a building the city of Belfort, and it's very much an economic worker placement game in a fantasy background. What does the expansion expansion add to the base game? It adds two main elements. In the assistants, the assistants are going to offer you an in-game bonus or boost, and they are selected in reverse turn order. And now that's quite important because there's an actual space that you place your workers on in Belfort to get the turn order. So it's actually part of the game getting to be first in turn order, and it's quite a strategic part of the game. So these place in reverse turn order. So it gives a little bit of a boost to the person who's last because they get to choose their assistant first. And the second part of this expansion is the expansions part of the expansion. How many times can I say expansion in one sentence? And they give small end-of-game bonuses. Now, they're not just a case of picking up a tire. You have to work towards these end-of-game bonuses, and you have to build them. It also adds more guilds, so it expands the game as the game was originally intended as well. And for me, I like the assistant side because I like the way it balanced the game quite often the person who was able to get into that first turn order took all the good things and was able to sort of impose themselves on the game and you'd have to waste a worker to try and get in there before them I, I like the way that it balances the games up and I like the way the assistants work but I'm not sure how much the expansion side of this provides it seems to me that it's a lot of work for not a lot of scoring. And to be honest, I tend to avoid it. And I've played games of this where I've completely avoided the expansions. Other people have really concentrated to work to get all these expansions into their game. And, and they've scored maybe two or three extra points at the end of the game. And I've won because I've just played the, the base game. So for me, the expansion side doesn't really work. But I like the assistant side and I like the fact that you get more guilds because it's a game that really does need a little bit more variety sometimes. Ronan? Sean, I haven't played Belfort the expansion, 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 expansion. So, guess what I'm going to do? You're going to ask me some questions? I'm going to ask you some questions. Hey, does it slow the game down at all? Only in as much as the people around it allow it to happen because... It can cause a little bit more analysis paralysis because it's one more thing to think about and it's one more thing that you have to work towards. The assistance is a very easy choice. It's just one more assistant as there is per player. So a three-player game, there's four assistants. They're all very basic actions. You know already what you want from them, so you're going to choose them pretty quickly. But yeah, I think it's just a case of it's something else to work towards. It shouldn't really expand unless someone gets AP. Are all of the assistants balanced, or are some of them so powerful that you start ending up not wanting to be first in turn order, just so you can get the more powerful assistants? No, not in my experience. I think they all give a nice little bonus, but it's not a game-changing bonus in any way, shape, or form, in my opinion. And with the shorter game, does it feel too rushed in an attempt to fit these extra things in in a shorter time frame in less rounds? 
Definitely, yeah, with the expansions. As I said, it's quite a resource-heavy, some of these expansions, and you do have to almost waste a turn getting these expansions into place, and they all tie in with all buildings that are already in the game. So you have to get that building, and then you have to get the expansion for that building, and then you have to build that expansion for the building. So I think, yeah, I think it does, definitely. Okay, so again, I haven't played the expansion, 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 expansion almost deliberately because there was nothing in there. I haven't read the rules, I haven't looked at it, I haven't talked to Sean, other players have played it. There wasn't a lot there that really grabbed me and I wasn't sure that I really wanted anything more added to Belfort because I find it a bit of a brain burner as it is and I, I find it quite hard to work out you know, what's vital and, and which areas to battle over when you're going for the area control and what have you in sections of the city. So there's enough there for me to be thinking about for sure at the moment. Sean, sum us up for the Belfort, the expansion, 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 expansion. Well, for Belfort, the expansion, 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 expansion. It is a definite middle of the road, maybe. Buy it if you really, really want something else from Belfort. You feel like Belfort isn't quite scratching the itch that you've got. But if you don't buy it and you like Belfort already, you're not going to miss out too much. So, yeah, there you go. Lovely. And the last expansion we're going to talk about before we go into the best of the best in our top fives is King of Tokyo Power Up. King of Tokyo is the giant monster dice rolling game in which players are rolling six dice or more, depending upon player powers. And they're attempting to hit each other, gain energy to buy mutations to make themselves more powerful. They're trying to heal up from hits they've taken previously and also score points. You can win the game either by being the last monster standing or by scoring 20 points before anyone else. What does Power Up do? It adds a deck of eight evolution cards for each of the individual monsters available in the game. And they draw a card from their own evolution deck if on any turn they have rolled three or more hearts. And those hearts will still heal you if you're damaged and they give you a use for hearts if you are not damaged. They add much needed individuality to the monsters. The funny thing about King of Tokyo is you do spend... 10, 15, or possibly 120 seconds choosing which monster at the beginning of the game, even though before Power Up came out, it made no difference. They were all the same. It matters because these characters are iconic. They are King Kong and Godzilla and Cyber Bunny with non-copyright infringing names, and you want to be a particular one. And Power Up lets you feel like you are being that particular character. Perhaps gives that little bit of buy-in that doesn't come when you don't have your own little thing you're not building up your own little powers and and uh, basically individuality giving you some theme and some more character to the game they don't tend to prolong the game which is one of the issues i have with some of the power cards because you get power cards out there which just make the game interminable and can last over an hour and it's just horrific at that length and generally these power-ups don't do that they tend to actually help to accelerate it make your monster more powerful it tends to be more powerful blows or scoring points quicker and help to keep the game flowing some of the cards are more powerful than others you can definitely get unlucky in that one of the players might draw their more powerful cards and they'll get a definite advantage but as long as it keeps the game moving and flowing and being quick i don't mind that much so as, as long as we're not sitting around for an hour it's all cool i don't mind if you've got a better card than me because we're just rolling dice and having some fun sean king of tokyo power up 
Ronan, I have never played King of Tokyo Power Up. So I am now going to fire a couple of questions at you. So you said that these monsters now have their own sort of distinct style and they're a bit more specialized. Does these sort of new cards, do they add more luck to an already luck-driven game when it comes to drawing the cards and some might be more powerful than others? Yeah, as I said, it does certainly to a degree. Someone can just get a couple of cards that match perfectly. They might even match one of the power cards that they've bought previously and suddenly they've got a fantastic synergy. Like I said, in a two-hour game, that would annoy me. In hopefully a 25, 30-minute game, hey, ho-hum, you got lucky, well done. Let's smash everyone up, have a good laugh and go play something proper. Just my second and final question is, there seems to be a catch-up mechanism that's been introduced in this expansion because after players can, can heal and they gain a special power if they heal. I mean, is that take away from the gamey side of it where someone does well or gets ahead and all of a sudden someone can heal and have this wonderful power? It does make you more likely to try and roll for the hearts in that, you know, sometimes if you didn't have so many hearts and you're messing around, you might end up just going for some points or whatever you. If you've got one or two hearts, it's worth the risk because not only will I heal the extra point, but I'll also get one of my cards, which is great. Now, in general, it counters that by making attacks more powerful and generally souping up the powers of the monsters so that as the game goes on, it does accelerate and everyone's doing slightly more damage to each other. Not in all cases. It's not perfect. Sometimes it does kind of you know, go towards turtling a little bit. But thankfully, they've thought the cards out well enough that in most cases, that's not going to happen. It's not going to slow down the game too much. Before Ronan sums up finally on our final game of our 12, I'm just going to say that, yeah, I like the fact that this adds the individualization to the monsters. I didn't see the point in everyone starting with exactly the same powers. That seemed boring to me. It actually put me off the game a little bit. I, I haven't played a lot of King of Tokyo at all, and that could have been the reason. So this may well be something that might make me look at the game. I'm not King of Tokyo's biggest fan, but I tell you what, this is a fun expansion. If you enjoy King of Tokyo... Go and get power up because you will enjoy it. It does add a little bit more to the game. I know King of New York has come out and that's added a whole bunch of different things and military and interactions. And, you know, I feel like that's going a bit too far. This is the right level of expansion for me. Just a tiny little soup up to a simple, fun little game. And, Sean, we're going to move on to the best of the best. Okay, so we've talked about the 12 randoms that we've picked, but now these are definitely not random. These are our very favorite expansions. And I am going to kick off with a small world, Necromancer's Island. So small world being the game of combat in a world with fantasy armies where you're trying to take territory off each other and scoring points that way. In Necromancer's Island it changes the dynamic slightly. Well, quite a, quite a big way, actually. One of the players assumes the role of the dreaded necromancer. And the necromancer is going to be inhabiting the central lake area in the small world maps. The necromancer is going to capture the souls of all the race tokens lost to conquests between any of the players and he uses them to progressively spawn ghosts who are going to invade the surrounding regions. 
And to make matters worse, his powers grow as his reach across the land increases. If the necromancer succeeds in bringing all of his ghosts into play, any time before the game's end, he wins. So what does this do to the game? Well, it sets a completely new dynamic in a very, very good game, in my opinion. And it asks some different questions to the normal game of Small World. All of a sudden, you've got this arch nemesis and overall almost like a dungeon master that everybody's got to fight against but you've also got to think about fighting each other because it's still a race to get as much points as you can so you've got to make decisions to keep the necromancer in check and if he gets too powerful then all of a sudden you're going to have to join and you're going to have to have a cooperative element to the game almost i think it's really enjoyable and it breathes life into a game that probably doesn't need that much life added to it, but it just does something different to the other expansions and that just give you minimal little tweaks here and there. And I really enjoyed every game I've played of this. Ronan? You said it before, Sean. This is a great expansion. It does have a whole new way to play the game. The whole one versus many aspect, which is fun in most games, as long as it's done well. The co-op aspect to Small World, which you wouldn't expect at such a combative game. I really would have thought it impossible to work that in, and this small tweak does that very well. Fantastic choice for your number five. Oliver, see your number five, Ronan. My number five is Core World's Galactic Orders. Core Worlds is the sci-fi themed deck building game which is definitely on the much heavier end of deck building games. Each player is playing a race of what's seen as barbarians advancing towards the center of a crumbling galactic empire, conquering steadily more powerful worlds and building up their armies to do so throughout the game via drafting and conquest. Galactic Orders adds certain events to the game, so every round something different can be going on. It also adds, very importantly, Galactic Order tokens. There are six Galactic Orders within the world now, and they represent different factions and powers, like the merchants and what have you. The power players behind the scenes who are looking to maintain the integrity of their infrastructure while the actual empire crumbles around them. Every time you deploy a card that has got an affiliation to a certain one of those galactic orders, you're going to be able to put one of your tokens on the board for that order. And you have a choice of what to do with those tokens because either you can use them for really useful mid-game bonuses to boost what you're doing, to get extra energy, to take money off the cost of deploying or drafting a card, to add strength to one of your invasions... Or leave it on there for possible end-game scoring. Because at the end of the game, whoever's got the most tokens is going to score a load of points. And then second is going to score some points. So you're balancing, this will score me points at the end of the game. But this bonus right now is really going to help me with what I'm doing. And it also allows you to garrison cards. And that's just a change of terminology. But it makes more sense in that you can put some of your cards onto the planets that you conquer. The extra bonus from the Galactic Order's actions lets you really soup up your deck quicker, make bigger moves more possible. It affects what you're doing with turn order a lot more as well. The more cards they've added, adds variety to the game. And it feels like they've put flesh on the bones of Core Worlds. Now, whereby with something like Fresco, you think the basic game is too basic and without the modules, it's, it really isn't good enough. Core Worlds, as you get in the box, is a good, deep deck building game. 
this feels like the advanced game that when you get used to Call Worlds, wow, you've put even more on there. Suddenly there's a lot more going on and I feel like you're really sparking different areas of my brain and already what I thought was a complex system has become even more complex, even more difficult decisions. Fantastic expansion. I love it. Sean, Call Worlds Galactic Orders. Yeah, well, it definitely opens up the game to more win strategies. Do you go after those tokens or spend them to be ultra aggressive? Or do you just concentrate on the drafting of the faction cards? So definitely more choices. I'm at the point in my core world evolution where... I haven't really explored the game enough. I, I love the game. I've bought the game. I own the expansion. But I haven't really got to the point where I want to play that expansion. I've played it once. And to be honest, I found it a little bit much for me just yet. I haven't really got to grips with Core Worlds as it is. I'm glad the expansion's there. And I will get to it eventually. But for me, right now, I'm going to stick with Core Worlds, the base game. Yeah, Core Worlds Galactic Orders. Maybe for when you're used to the Core World system, but for me, a, a, just a great expansion. Sean, what's your number four? It is a Spartacus, the Serpent and the Wolf. Now, we all know about Spartacus. It's that delightful, backstabbing, nasty game where you're bringing your losers up to the top of the city of Capua. And... It's just a delightful, nasty game where there's lots of player interaction and that's the whole basis of the game. So what does this really add to it? Well, it adds new houses. So you can take the player count up to six. It adds new slaves, gladiators, weapons and action cards, which in a game like Spartacus, you, you go through them so quickly that it's always something nice to be able to hit someone with something they haven't really had before. The biggest change, though, is the four-player Primus. Previously, you could only have two players gladiators in the Primus and they would go and they would fight to the death and people would gamble on it. Now, you can have a four-player free-for-all. So all of a sudden, you're even adding the backstabbing element into the only part of the game that probably didn't have the backstabbing element. Because now, you can form alliances, people can take money off you and say, listen, I'm going to throw this so you can bet on me, give me some money. And all of a sudden, they might turn around, stab you in the back, win the prime. It just adds quite a lot to the game. I think what they've also done is they've balanced out the super gladiator problems. There were some gladiators that if you got them, people would either just deny you getting them ever into the arena to fight because they were just too strong. Now everyone can get hold of a, a quite a strong gladiator because there's more of them around. It's one of these that just adds more to the game. There's lots of more, and that's what I wanted with this. And with the four-player Primus, just adds more fun and more hilarity. Not sure about the higher player counts, but you can you don't have to play with them. So for me, what it's a great expansion to a great game. You know that I really enjoy Spartacus, Sean. What Serpent and the Wolf does, it adds more of the same, which is good because I like the base game, but it doesn't add enough for me to rate it as a really top expansion. The expansions I've chosen in the top five, they're not necessarily to my favourite games. They are expansions that I think add a lot to whatever the base game might be. And this one, more of the same. The Primus is good fun when you get four gladiators in, but it doesn't really happen that often. I mean, uh, sometimes we've just had to sell it up or just say, right, we're having a Primus because we haven't had one yet. Because it just doesn't come up that often. And six player, 
only ever in a short game. Do not play a medium or long game with six player. Good God, that's torturous. And hours and hours and hours long. I really like Spartacus. Serpent the Wolf. Yeah, it, it adds some fun to it. But it doesn't add enough for, for me to make it a top expansion. I just thought it added plenty of new stuff. And that's really what I wanted from this uh, expansion. Ronan, what's your number four? My number four is Kingsburg to Forge a Realm. Now, Kingsburg is a good game. It's a dice roller in which you roll your dice, then you assign your dice to places on the board in order to gain resources. You'll be using those resources in order to build buildings in your own little tableau. It takes place over five years. At the end of every year, you get attacked by monsters, and those monsters increase generally in power as the years go on. And you're trying to score points for building your buildings and defeating the monsters. We played Kingsburg a lot when it first came out, and there was a couple of years there where whenever it seems to be I'd introduce new people to the hobby of gaming, they would fall in love with Kingsburg and end up playing half a dozen times with them, and I did it again and again and again with different groups. And I tell you, after a number of plays, and quite a number of plays, it desperately needed variety. I ended up playing the same game again and again and again. I knew which buildings to build. I knew that if I followed a certain plan, I would win the game. It was really as simple as that. Then to Forge Realm came along, and it is a fantastic expansion. It's got five modules of varying sort of usefulness. I'll go through them briefly. The first one adds two extra rows on each player's board. So originally you had five rows of buildings you could build. This now gives you seven. That Everyone's of the same seven, but adding that variety, it added certain different routes you can go down, was a great addition. It also added two unique rows for each player. So every player drew two strips, and they would cover up the original strips on now their seven-strip board, and suddenly everyone's board was different. Again, more variety. Every time you played, your board looked different. Fantastic. It added characters for each player. So like the nations in the Manhattan Project expansion, this gave you something which gave you a certain bonus, or actually sometimes not a bonus, for the whole game. Unbalanced, total rubbish, never use them. The fourth one was events. So you drew them at the start of each year, and it said that every time you get stone, you get two stone, or you can't do this, or number seven's closed, you can't go there. Pointless, adds even more random to a dice game, never use it. Last one, we'll go back to a positive, are the reinforcement tokens. Now, in the base game, when you get attacked by monsters, the king is going to send you some support, but you don't know how much support he's going to send you. If you rolled a one, those who had planned well were probably going to get screwed over. If you rolled a six, those who had not planned well and had wasted their resources, not wasted, but used their resources in other areas, then got out of completely the roll of the dice, rewarded for doing so. Those who had used their resources to prepare for the battle, which I thought was imprudent, were getting punished in effect. And it, it just didn't work. I didn't like it. In this case, everyone gets a set of reinforcement tokens, which range of value from zero to four. You choose which token to use each turn, each war. And at the end of the game, whichever token you haven't used, you're going to score that number in points. And in a game which can be quite tight on point scoring, that can make a difference. It rewards good planning. On my list, because those three good modules are really good, the Bigger player boards, the added variety to player boards, and the reinforcement tokens all make the game something a little bit better than than what well, is a good game to start with, but this ups it a level. Throw away the other two. The modules, they're rubbish. Sean? Right, Ronan. Yes, we are definitely going to come to blows over this one because my number three choice is Dominion Prosperity. 
which is, of course, one of the Dominion expansions. This Dominion expansion provides more money and makes it more of an economic engine builder. It also gives you a platinum money card and it gives you colonies. The platinum gives you more money and the colonies cost more to obtain. It changes Dominion from being an intense head scratcher where you're obviously eking out that last bit of money. And I think that's what all the other expansions for Dominion do. This one, it makes it into a game where you can watch your fortune visibly grow and you can enjoy the fruits of your engine. I think it's a nice change to recharge your Dominion batteries and enjoy a game where you're not being sniped at. And I think it's a nice arc to this game. It really speeds up once the engines are in place. And it's my favourite of the expansions. Ronan, I know you're going to agree with every word I've said. So many things of what you just said were accurate, Sean. It changes Dominion <laughs> from an intense head scratcher into what? How did you put it? Into enjoying the fruit. Blah, 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 blah. Change it from an intense head scratcher into blah. It speeds up the game at the deficit of any small amount of strategy or solving the puzzle of Dominion. The key to Dominion is here is a new puzzle every time you play. Here's a new set of kingdom cards. Find the best way to eke out an engine out of these by using actions and buys and attacks and defenses and culling your deck and using some kind of strategy. When you play with prosperity, all other strategies are thrown out. It is just get platinums, get platinums, get colonies. Bam, 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 bam. It is Dominion for dummies. Okay. It's quite fun. When it first came out and I played a couple of games of it, I said, oh, that's all right. That's interesting. That's something else to do with your money. Now, take it away. Because I want to go back to playing Dominion in that everyone is making action chains. We're getting plus buys is important. Prosperity makes 80% of the other cards completely useless. There is no point in buying such you know plus action cards or or things that chain together cleverly and culling down your deck. It is just rush, 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 get platinum, rush, 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 get colonies, rush, 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 rush. I don't enjoy that. I like to play Dominion to massage my brain, not to massage my ego. Well, obviously, we, we, we have disagreed. I like an economy game. I like the fact that you build it up and you're working your economy and you're trying to make the most out of your money. But, okay, I think we're, we're never going to agree on this one because I've always liked prosperity and you've always been more of an intrigue, man. Now, I just want to have a little discussion, Ronan. What, what do you think of the Dominion expansions in general? What's your favourite? And do you think that we've had enough of them now? I think I'd say my favorite is probably Seaside in that it is a balance of lots of the other ones. It adds a bit of intrigue. There is a bit of prosperity in that some of the cards are quite powerful in there. But what they went on to do later on, I suppose there's certain mechanisms which aren't in Seaside because it is sort of in the first half of expansions. But it encompasses all of what he tried to do in one box as best for me. Alchemy was a complete failure. Cornucopia was a little bit of a mess. Hinterlands, you know, was was a bit grim. It made things a bit difficult sometimes. So uh, I think they're of varying quality. There's definitely enough. 
there's there's enough. In fact, you know, just before they printed Prosperity, they should probably should have stopped. <laughs> I don't hate Prosperity. Prosperity's fine for a different type of game, but it changes the game of varying strategies into a game of one strategy. You know what my favourite is? I've answered the first half anyway, but I do think yeah, enough is enough. I think Dominion are fantastic. They've done... Unless someone comes up with something amazing, they've done what they can do with this game now. I don't think there's much more that they can do with it. So and I think they've got a complete collections of expansions. Just, yeah, drop Alchemy out of that little list. Lovely. Can we move well, on? <laughs> on you go, old chap. Okay. Let's move on and let's go to an expansion that added some subtlety and strategy and depth to a deck builder. My number three, Rune Age, Oath and Anvil. Rune Age is a fantasy flight games deck builder, which we've discussed previously, in which players are playing as one of various races. Now, in the base game, it was a up to four player game, and it came with only four races. And those races had a set number of units. And you had to manage three different currencies in one of four different scenarios with different win conditions and the balance of how you manage your currencies depending upon which scenario you are playing however you were always playing with the same set of units each faction played very differently now what Oath and Anvil did was it added two more factions without adding more players though so you can still only play with up to four by adding those two more factions because the factions interact with each other it added a lot more combinations just having those in it freed things up a bit you weren't seeing the same combinations played on the different races all the time also it added new units for each faction including the base ones which gave them some more flexibility it meant that you weren't really fighting against certain scenarios with certain races and that you had different approaches you could take it included different scenarios so there's a scent of the overlord which is all versus one into the game much like necromancer island that sean talked about earlier this power struggle which it adds a new kind of asset called landmarks there's a new co-op version of one of the original games there's new mercenary cards that have come into it they interact in a different way there are new neutral cards which will go in the middle which change up for each scenario it just added variety it added different ways of playing it added different blends different blends of units depending upon which situation you're in which other races were in play it took a base game which felt like it had huge promise but hadn't quite grown into what it could be and grew it into a fantastic deck building game. This whole system, Rune Age and Oath and Anvil, is a brave and a successful attempt to do deck builders in a different way. Okay, I've seen so many deck builders with a row of cards in the middle and you get lucky if you chain them. I've seen so many Dominion clones. I want to see different things done with it and Rune Age does that and Oath and Anvil brings it to a new level. Yeah, Ronan, this game improves the original in every single way. It doesn't just add, as you said, a few new factions and a few new scenarios, but it brings in additions to the existing factions, the existing scenarios. And as you said about the mercenaries, they've they fixed the problem that I didn't even know I had in that you often got to the point where you had money and you had nothing really to spend it on. The mercenary solves that. They're available to everyone, so they're a common factor in the game. I think, yeah, a wonderful expansion and an example to all expansions, really. Great, we agree. My number three was a great choice. Your number three wasn't. What's your number two, Sean? 
<laughs> I'm not sure, quite sure we agreed on that. I, I think we did. I think we clearly agreed. What's your number two, yeah. <laughs> So my choice is another fantasy flight game. It is Blood Bowl Team Manager Sudden Death. But this could quite easily be foul play because they both scratch the same itch. In Blood Bowl Team Manager... You are a manager of a fantasy team in the Blood Bowl arena, which is a miracle football variant where it's a lot more violent and all sorts of manner of things happen. In this, it's just introducing more of the same. And that's what I felt that Blood Bowl needed. It needed that bit more variety with the team. So it brings in some new teams. Sudden Death has some undead teams, which is always popular with me. I love my zombies and my vampires. And they all come in with very thematic playing styles, which was something that really drew me to the, the base game, was the thematic playing styles of the different teams. So it doesn't really introduce new mechanism, but it just tweaks the game. It brings in contracts and down skills, enchanted balls, and some new team upgrades. The expansion just provides a bit more depth, and as I said, it's, that's exactly what the game needed. It didn't need any massive gameplay additions, but rather options and small tweaks to revitalize the game that I've really played to death. Ronan, what did you think of, of this and, of course, foul play? I think that the whole Blood Bowl team manager is an underrated game system. I don't know whether it's because there's not quite a marriage between theme and gameplay. It's very thematic, but actually it is quite strategic, and ta- well, at least tactical in the way that you have to play the game. It's not all dice rolls and randoms. You're very much reading each other and seeing where people are going and trying to judge what they're building up towards. There's kind of the more thinky game mechanisms within a hugely thematic system. And whether it kind of sits in that fence and doesn't grab either side, I don't know. But I really enjoy it. The whole system is interactive. It's hugely thematic. It's tactical. It rewards good play. And that's good play both of the game mechanisms and also, as I said, off the other players and trying to read what they're doing and what their goals are and what their priorities are for each round and for the whole game. I don't know if you mentioned, but if foul play adds a fifth player, and this is one of the games in which adding a fifth player is not an issue because downtime is not huge. A lot of things are done simultaneously apart from actually just playing cards. And the more players you have going for that tournament card, that affects the whole rest of the game. Every match in the game is affected by what players are doing for that big tournament bonus at the top there of the lineup. It's a good thing. It leads to harder decisions and more things to think about. All the new teams are fun and some of them are a pain to play against. You feel like, oh, every new race they bring in is overpowered, as any good fancy flight game should be. Everything's overpowered, everything's overpowered, but yet every race can win. I don't like the enchanted ball thing. I think that's a random step too far. In foul play, I hate the referee thing. I think that's a random step too far. But you know what? It's easy enough to ignore them. They've designed the expansions well enough to just go, look, I don't want to use them. I love the base game. I think both expansions add to it. I'm just going to lump them both in together. And I think this was a strong choice, Sean. Well, thank you. On to your number two, then. My number two is the imaginatively named Pillars of the Earth expansion set. <laughs> you know what you're getting when you play a box called that. Pillars of the Earth is a worker placement game in which players were competing to help build a cathedral based around the Pillars of the Earth, a literary license from Ken Follett. Now, in the expansion set, this adds a whole bunch of stuff. It 
fixes stuff from the base game. It adds things to the base game. It adds two extra players and is just a real great example of an expansion done well. First of all, one of the mechanisms you could complain about in the base game. In order to take your actions during the game, you've got three basically workers, master builders. Now, all everyone's master builders were put into a bag and drawn out. And the first one drawn out will be the most expensive to play. So that would cost you quite a large amount of money if you wish to place it. If you didn't wish to place it on the board, it would get put down on a track. And then the price for the next one drawn out would reduce. And the next one drawn out would then be, okay, do you want to place this price or, or do you want to be placed after the first one that, that the player declined to use, shall we say. And then these master builders would be drawn out of the bag. And then it would get down to a point where they were all zero. And then all the rest would be drawn out of the bag. And then all the ones that have been skipped previously, you go back to them and then they would be placed. Which allowed for you to get in a Euro game with resource conversion of tight victory points and some mean things that happen to you, you could just get screwed by the draw of a bag. And it really... In some games, it might fit in. In this milieu, in this set of mechanisms, it didn't fit. If all of your master builders were drawn early and it was hugely expensive to place them, you would get screwed over. If they were all drawn late and too many of the good spots have gone, you would get screwed over. They did a real simple fix here. You only put two of your master builders into the bag. As one is drawn out, if you are the first person to choose to place a master builder out onto the board and pay whatever fee there may or may not be, you then take your third master builder and place it on a separate track on the expansion board. That will be the last master builder to be played. Like I say, it adds five or six players, but there's not big downtime in this. It adds competition on the board. And competition on the board, of course, in any work placement is positive, but Sometimes if you had too many players, then the competition becomes too intense and there's no alternative. And suddenly you're kind of killing the game. And the end of a round and the last workers we place can have nowhere to go. But there's a whole other board that comes with this game. And not only does it add alternatives, it adds viable alternatives with interesting things to do. So being late to be drawn is not a total disaster. It adds more cards and resources, so the resource flow is maintained. Um, in Originally, you could be left with lots of workers in the game, and basically everyone would just chuck them off to, I think it was a wall mill or something, and basically you made money out of them. This provides an option to send workers out onto the Crusades. So when you have workers left over that you haven't sent to get resources, these are separate to your master builders, by the way, you don't have to default and just send them for gold. You might have a load of gold. It's not likely, but you might. You can send them off to the Crusades and start nibbling some points away from doing that, which is, again adds a little bit of interest, a little bit more of a decision to be make. Um, there's the Saint-Denis card. Players buy craftsmen in the game by worker placement or, or at the beginning of the game by purchasing them. And there's certain craftsmen that could be vital to what you're hoping to do. And someone else nips in ahead of you and manages to get that craftsman. Well, they put a Saint-Denis card in which lets you lose anyone's craftsman from around the table, but less capacity then that person has to use it. So you can't get completely screwed by someone taking a craftsman that you were sort of building a strategy towards, which obviously is more important if you've got some experience. It addresses minor issues with the base game, which is already a very good game. It adds extra powers in a fantastic way. It is a great expansion with a bit of a boring name. Pillars of the Earth expansion set, Sean. Wow, you can tell you're quite passionate about that, Rodan. And to be honest... I think you've pretty much nailed it on the head. So it's a case of, yeah, what he said. Adds more choice, fixes the luck element with the draw quibble and the master builders, 
and it does it all seamlessly and it just makes the game a whole lot better. I mean, I can't really say any more than that. You've said everything I needed to say on that, Ronan. Lovely. Thank you, Sean. So, <laughs> the, the big moment, you're number one. Well, my number one, probably unsurprisingly, one of my favourite games of all time, and it's the best expansion for that, and it's Arkham Horror, the Innsmouth Horror expansion. Arkham Horror, it's a Cthulhu mythos-themed game where you're playing it cooperatively to defeat a great monster or being to stop them devouring the world and you're going around a map collecting things and trying to shut gates and portals and what have you. But that's Arkham Horror. So what does Innsmouth Horror add to it? It adds a new board with the town of Innsmouth and then you can explore that. It adds 16 new investigators. It adds eight new ancient ones. There is 300 cards in this expansion. Some of the things that it does that really change the game up is adds unique personal story arcs for each investigator, which the base game doesn't have. And something that Ronan's become very familiar from playing Eldritch Horror, it adds the infamous Innsmouth look. So just so you people know what the Innsmouth look is, it's basically, it's a condition that happens in the game that turns you into a fish. The town of Innsmouth Sorry, is on the coast. Sorry, over that again. What? There's what? <laughs> it turns you into a fish, Ronan, yeah. as you well know. <laughs> Terribly funny when the character you've been building up for hours in Eldritch Horror turns into a fish at the flip of a game. <laughs> And the backstory, very briefly, of this is the Innsmouth's based on the coast and the townsfolk have been interbreeding with the uh, fishy denizens of the ocean and they basically... <laughs> sorry, sorry, what? <laughs> yes, this, this, is, this is what it's all about. I know, I'm just and... highlighting that you're saying this as if it's something, you know. Okay, carry on. And they gradually assume the appearance of the uh, their ancestors. Now, mm. I, I got a bit worried, Ronan. I got a bit worried looking in the mirror. Yes, some of the traits are glassy, bulging, unblinking eyes, narrow, hairless head, <laughs> folds on the back of the neck. <laughs> it's all becoming far too personal. <laughs> Over six foot six. <laughs> Eight feet wide. No. <laughs> no. If I get the webs between the fingers, I'm finished. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So moving on, this is the game that changed Arkham. In my opinion, it's very much the inspiration behind a lot of what Eldritch Horror brought to the game in the fact that it adds these personal arcs and like you have to get a ticket to go to places in, on the board. And it really added a lot to the game. It's not only a massive, massive expansion to the Arkham Horror game, but it actually changes the game, which I think the other expansions in the range, they just add more of the same. This is the one that really changed it for me. And that's why it was my favourite Arkham Horror expansion, and it made a, a game that I absolutely adore even more interesting to me. So my thoughts on Innsmouth Horror, it does add more investigators and monsters and ancient ones, as you'd expect, like all the other expansions. Okay, fine. The backstories to all the investigators are rubbish they're unbalanced some of the positive effects just happen almost automatically some of the negative ones are just ridiculous you know your backstory is you go to Innsmouth you become a fish Woo, 
uh, they're just horrific, awful. One of the things that I, I guess it does well, although it really, really does feel mean, is that as you deal with the gates and the problems in Arkham, the problems in Innsmouth get worse and worse because the Deep One's track advances. Uh, you get to a certain point and martial law kicks in, which makes everything more difficult. So it kind of feels like the game's punishing you for doing well on the base game, which is one of the reasons why it is an expansion for the hardcore of Arkham Horror. It's for those of you who think Arkham Horror is not hard enough, hasn't got enough stuff, stuff going on, and it, it just makes everything that much harder. I can see the appeal for Sean and his fellow Afflicted who like to play Arkham Horror a lot. I will be at the next table along playing Eldritch Horror, but in terms of Arkham Horror expansions, yeah, sure, this, this is the best of them for whatever that means to you. I will say that you need to take out the other two big expansions before you play with this because to get the full fish fishy flavour, which is slightly disturbing after Sean's explanation earlier, to the game, you need to have the Innsmouth Horror stuff mixed in enough that it's going to come out regularly enough to, to give the sort of flavour to it. But my last question to Sean is, why specifically would you choose this ahead of Kingsport and Dunwich, the other two big Arkham Horror expansions? Because, as I said, this does something a little bit different. They just add to the game the way it flows already. I, I disagree with you on the backstories. I like the role-playing element of this game. Yeah, some of them might be a bit corny. They might be a bit unbalanced. But I like the fact that it does add a backstory to these characters. You do care a little bit more about these characters. Because I've always played this game almost like a role-playing game. I care about my character. I'm worried about where I'm going to explore. I'm trying to keep them alive. So that's why, for me, this was my favourite expansion. I think the one after that is probably the Miskatonic, because that adds a little bit to all of the expansions. If you've got all the expansions, that's going to improve and enhance each one of the expansions. So it's almost an expansion expansion that isn't Belfort. An expansion, 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 expansion. <laughs> Indeed. Belfort horror. The expansion, 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 expansion. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my number one expansion of all time is Cyclades Hades. Cyclades is a kind of a warry, conflicty game within the Cyclades archipelago in ancient Greece. And you are attempting to build up or take control of two metropoli in order to win the game. You do this by winning bids to control one of five different gods, which are going to grant you various powers by building up armies, building up fleets, attacking each other's, using mythical monsters, and generally within an ancient Greek theme, having a little bit of a scrap over these islands, their resources, and the buildings you've been building on them. Now, a familiar story... Cyclades Hades comes in four modules, but they are quite interactive between themselves, these modules. Not sure that they work as well as others if you split them up. The first module means that the first bit of the game, it leads to a variable setup. When the game is played, you mix up the gods and they get set out in a different order each time. In this first bid, whoever wins the first bid gets to choose what islands they wish to go on with their armies. And depending upon which god you win on this first round, you're going to get a little bonus. So if you win Apollo, the god of war, you're going to get an extra soldier. If you win uh, Zeus, you're going to get an extra priest and so on. So that's kind of interesting itself, but not massive. It also adds additional creatures and also heroes 
They're heroes going with the creatures. They're similar to them, but they cost an upkeep each round. So they have an ability, but each round you must pay money to keep them going. But there's a sacrifice ability, which is situational, but very powerful when you find yourself within that situation. So it will help you build a city. Um, for example, Midas if you have that hero and sacrifice him, allows you to build a whole metropolis, which is half of the way towards winning the game, by paying 15 money. So if you've got yourself set up in the right situation, heroes can be hugely powerful, but if you get stuck with one, it can drain your economy. Now, each round, either Hades, the eponymous star of our expansion, or a Divine Favor will be available. Now, Divine Favors will be available more often than Hades, so I'll just chat about them. Um, divine Favors come from lesser gods. They're not actually available to be sort of one and bids themselves but if you win the second last god who's always the one above apollo you get a divine favor now each divine favor offers an ongoing power so just a little bonus that you get for this that or whatever they have different game effects and a one-off bonus they might give you an, an item or ability to generate money or to sacrifice so you might be able to sacrifice philosophers to get more troops things like that just things to help you become slightly more powerful in the game at the end of each round, dice are rolled, and when the dice roll cumulatively reach a certain number, Hades is going to appear in the next round, and that is the big thing that this expansion changes for Cyclades. All Divine Favours that have been taken before are going to get wiped out, so their ongoing powers are gone, and you'll be able to rebuy them again. They got shuffled up, but Hades is very interesting. Hades is the only god that allows you to both generate and use ground and sea troops at once the problem with Cyclades was you needed to win Poseidon which let you build boats and then move your boats to create a chain and then you needed to use Apollo who would let you buy troops and then move those troops including the crossbows in order to attack other people's areas well Hades kind of breaks that up a bit if you're not stuck in this Poseidon Apollo or possibly uh, Pegasus that could happen at the end game of Cyclades. And throughout the game as well, it's more, you're more open to surprise attacks. Also, interestingly, you can build an Acropolis, which will then give you income every time anything dies until the next time someone else builds an Acropolis, which will make yours disappear, or someone comes and conquers that island. So it gives another very valid target for people to attack, and it's something worth keeping, because a lot of times buildings in the game are ephemeral, and you don't necessarily need to keep them. So, like I say, it makes up the whole game. It makes the whole game less predictable, yet still strategic. I really like Cyclades, the base game, but when Hades came in, man, it took it to a different level altogether. I would not want to play Cyclades without Hades expansion. Just a glorious, glorious expansion. Sean? Yeah, as you said, Ronan, it adds a lot to the game. The free positioning round adds a lot of strategy and the choices at the beginning of the game allow you to have two adjacent islands that, and that promotes combat and tug-of-war type situations later in the game. Hades himself is a lot of fun and he increases the amount of combat in the game. Uh, the bidding for Hades can get really, really intense at times for what he gives you. The divine favors make the bidding more interesting. Even when Hades is waiting in the wings or waiting in the underworld, they lend to the game. I'm not sure that I love it as much as you do, Ronan, but definitely it's a good expansion and it does change the game up in some interesting ways. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of the base game, which means I'm kind of predisposed to like the expansion. 
I played the base game enough that we got to positions whereby everyone knew almost the value of everyone else's move, and it was very much Mexican standoff, and playing games in which there's five players and four players have won at some point in the last round until it finally finishes, and actually one player has ended up winning. And, and the fact that Haley just fixed that up so cleverly. It allowed multiple ways of getting that end game scoring. It opened up the board. It prevented things become moribund. And generally improved upon an already really great base game. So I'm just going to hand over to Sean. And he's going to give you our thoughts on what we've learned while researching this. And our general ideas on expansion. To sum up, I think we both agree that when it comes to the question of what makes a good expansion and what makes a bad expansion, there is no right or wrong answer. I think it basically falls to publishers and designers to a certain degree to understand their own product, first of all, and then listen to feedback from their customers, because they're the people who are going to tell you what works and what doesn't work there's a wonderful community out there and if you make use of them then they can be such an asset in terms of expansions to games and what they want so of course some games are broken and an expansion is the chance to make up for what failed in the base game and fix that problem but some games aren't broken and they don't need fixing they don't need revamping or taking in a new direction they just need more of the same to either expand choice or give some longevity something that really annoys me personally is when some publishers deliberately supply an incomplete game with the express intention of selling little additions to it at inflated prices that should have been just included in the base game the expansions won't please everyone but for example, my take on Lords of Waterdeep expansion, I can appreciate what it tried to tackle and that there was some thought put behind it, but it ultimately wasn't what I wanted. But it openly addressed issues that a large section of the gaming community had with the game, and that can only be applauded. So I suppose the message to the game makers of the world from us is that don't just throw your product out into the gaming world and forget about it. Follow the fans and the community, and if expansion is needed, find out why it's needed and work towards that goal. Don't just pump something out with the sole intention of making money. The money will come regardless and in larger amounts if the product stands up to scrutiny over time. So thanks for listening to our special expansions episode there. We hope perhaps you found some gems to add to some of your favorite games and possibly some expansions to avoid wasting your money on. Yeah, as well as thank you very much for listening to us. Next up, we'll be doing a Picking Over the Bones episode. So catch us then. And until then, you can always find us on the Dice Tower Network, as we are very proud members, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. We can also be found at 2d6.org, along with a whole host of gaming goodness. If you want to email us, we are at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We have a active Twitter account, so we're at Game Pit Podcast on Twitter. We have a Facebook page, come and have a chat to us there. And of course, we have a Board Game Geek Guild. Music by E. Aaron. <laughs>